I'll start by saying that I will use the phrase securitization in a, in a, in a way that deserves some critical scrutiny in light of Andrew's comments. Um, I also will, will make the caveat that I tend to, uh, tend to be more formal about what I've written, so, um, so I hope that I have worked out the time well enough. Um, it's almost impossible, even now, to describe what actually happened in the United States on September 11, 2001. Enshrouded as those events are in the virtually instantaneous mass-mediated myth-making that served as the pretext for a new global state of exception that was unabashed in its exorbitant recourse to preemptive war and preventative detention of suspected enemies. Um, the days before and the days after the events associated with that extravagantly fetishized date are separated not like the end of an old and the beginning of a new period, uh, but like the day before and the day after an explosion. Yet this figure of speech is inaccurate, um, as are all others. First, because these events took shape around actual explosions, they were not merely metaphorical. Second, uh, because those events were nevertheless not reducible to their overt form or appearance as explosions, mere, <coughs> acts, mere acts of bombing. Um, third, because treating those events like some sort of rupture in historical time is precisely part of the <coughs> fetishization. Um, even as the effectiveness of such an ideological operation has in fact instituted an ethical shift at the material and practical level of security state formation on a global scale, I would argue. Um, and I want to reiterate this point. Um, it's part of the ideological game, um, and was so very explicitly from the very beginning, to treat uh, September 11, 2001, the events associated with that date, um, codified or commodified uh, as a kind of insignia, 9-11. Um, it's, it's become part of the ideological game to treat that as a kind of rupture in time. Um, and, to, and to say that, the, that those states mark a kind of point um, uh, around which a before and after are defined um, is part of the problem, I would argue. And at the same time, that ideological operation has been so effective. Um, that it's led to the institutionalization of a whole variety of new kinds of security state formation um, that have material and practical consequences. Um, and so, and so we live in, um, we live within a certain kind of um, discursive myth-making or fetishized ideological kind of um, reification of that as a kind of rupture. And I think that its consequences are very material, practical ones. Um, and fourth, um, because the quiet and sorrow, uh, the quiet of sorrow that follows from such a catastrophe was never given the chance to settle upon those who witnessed it, which in this case is virtually the whole world. Um, instead, it was followed by a rising crescendo of global war making and the hysteria of, of the putative war on terror, which did not relent for several years. Um, and still worse, when the quiet finally did come, it was in the ghastly form of, a protra of protracted military occupations, the, the banalization of ever-expanding horizons for new military interventions, and the routinization of an amorphous 
and seemingly infinite state of emergency. Um, the metaphysics of anti-terrorism have now permeated the very fabric of everyday life. And those explosions appear indeed to have touched off a chain reaction in which we've been caught ever since and which nobody seems able to stop. I referred to the manifold global ramifications of what we could call the politics of securitarianism. Now, anyone acquainted with Hannah Arendt's account in The Origins of Totalitarianism um, will recognize um, that I've crafted these opening lines in a manner that deliberately reiterates but reconfigures the opening lines of her much celebrated chapter on the decline of the nation state and the end of the rights of man. Um, all of what I just said was a paraphrase of her reiterated around the question of um, September 11th and securitarianism, as I'm calling it. Um, so from the outset, however, I should it ought to be made plain that this short paper is emphatically not uh, an exercise in anything so grandiose as trying to account for the origins of securitarianism. It ought to suffice to say simply enough that the securitization of human mobility indubitably preceded the so-called war on terror. And this essay is neither directly concerned with sketching that genealogy nor with accounting for the historical specificities of the uh, ensuing sociopolitical regime of anti-terrorism. Um, Paul Verilio has suggested um, the term globalitarian uh, to refer to a top topological reversal of erstwhile imperialist geopolitics, whereby the proverbial backyard of the United States is now co-equal to the entire planet. And it's indeed the metaphysics of anti-terrorism that have crucially rendered such a globalitarian project inextricable, inseparable from one of quote-unquote security. Hence, um, I want to try to identify the larger outline of human mobility, migration in particular, as a central if largely unrecognized figure constituting the contemporary global social formation and its hegemonic politics of security. He quotes what I'm calling securitarianism. Um, and notably, although perhaps counterintuitively, Arendt's meditation on the rights of man, what in a less classical idiom we might call human rights, um, is particularly pertinent here, uh, for, his, for her account is deeply preoccupied by precisely the question of mobility. Uh, in her preface to the first edition of Origins of Totalitarianism, Arendt memorably characterized the 20th century in terms of homelessness on an unprecedented scale, rootlessness, on an of an unprecedented depth. Uh, the true ramifications of this formulation only become fully explicit in the chapter to which I've alluded already, uh, where the tumultuous succession of cataclysmic events that supplied the defining features of the first half of the 20th century are chiefly distinguished in Arendt's account for having provoked migrations. Migrations of groups, here I'm quoting, uh, who were welcomed nowhere and could be assimilated nowhere who, once they had left their homeland, remained homeless and became stateless. Uh, Arendt is most directly concerned with the dilemma <coughs> uh, of the deprivation of the civil rights of these dispossessed people, and following their forced displacement, the consequent transmutation of these initial travesties into the prolonged and irremediable condition of their veritable rightlessness. Now, this conundrum surrounding the questions of human rights, so Paul provides an instructive backdrop um, for my own questions, but the aim here is not to debate the virtues or shortcomings of Arendt's account. It's especially revealing, nevertheless, as she incisively notes, 
um, that this process allowed for the totalitarian regimes, particularly that of Nazi Germany, to convert their victims into precisely what they had always already alleged them to be, namely, and this is the phrase she uses, the scum of the earth. That is to say, by means of an utterly and devastatingly effective factual propaganda, uh, they were delivered across nation-state frontiers as, and here I'm quoting again, unidentifiable beggars, without nationality, without money, and without passports. Hence, we may detect at the heart of Arendt's prescient inquiry into the perplexities of human rights a question about human mobility in an extreme form that nonetheless bears a striking resemblance at the dawning of the 21st century to the plight of an ever-growing and ever-increasingly prominent mass of restless denizens, migrants, and asylum seekers, presumptively susceptible for administrative detention and all manner of police measures, with little or no recourse to any semblance of legal process, existentially homeless, inassimilable, and deportable all. Here, of course, it's become a convention to speak of deportation with reference to migrants and other non-citizens, confronted with the imperviousness of nation-state sovereignty to any claims on their part as mere foreigners to rights or entitlements of cross-border mobility. Um, but as we're reminded by Arendt's discussion of statelessness, deportation was a crucial technique of state power for the disposal of diverse populations of undesirables. Um, and particularly pertinent in her account is uh, the deportation of citizens themselves, um, denationalized citizens. Um, diverse populations of so-called undesirables to be subjected sometimes to serial expulsions or dis and displacements, or alternately to be targeted for extermination. The problem in her era, of course, was what Arendt astutely calls the undeportability of the stateless person. Um, and the perennial dilemma of how to make refugees deportable yet again. Um, as Arendt notes in her exposition of how the very concept of statelessness degenerated into one of mere displacement, there's a refusal to acknowledge statelessness that always means repatriation, i.e. deportation to a country of origin, which either refuses to recognize the prospective repatriate as a citizen, or on the contrary, urgently wants him back for punishment. Um, the more vexed the predicament of such so-called undesirables and the states that did not desire them, furthermore, the more the internment camp emerged as the routine solution in the Rent's phrase, uh, the routine solution for the problem of domicile of, dis of the displaced persons, the only practical substitute for a non-existent homeland, the only country the world had to offer them. Um, inevitably, these same vexations generated a crisis for immigration and naturalization regimes in receiving states um, and undermined the status of migrants who had been previously naturalized, such, as, uh, such that living conditions for all aliens markedly deteriorated. Uh, confronted with those who had been stripped of their citizenship, who had been denationalized and deported by another state, finally these receiving states came increasingly to render their own lawfully resident aliens and citizens themselves susceptible for denaturalization and denationalization, and became embroiled in the sorts of lawlessness organized by the police, in, in, again, in Rent's phrase, that threatened them with a subtle but ever more seemingly inexorable danger of a gradual transformation to a police state. And Rent's account, therefore, between an incapacity to treat the stateless people as legal persons and the extension of arbitrary rule by police decree, on the one hand, and on the other, a temptation 
to deprive all citizens of legal status and rule them with, with an omnipotent police, um, it is deportation that figures as the decisive pivot. So at the beginning of the 20th, of, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was commonly considered to be, frankly, unconscionable, uh, even by many immigration judges, to inflict the plainly punitive hardship of expulsion upon so-called unauthorized but otherwise lawful long-term migrants and their families. Uh, by the century's end, deportation had become utterly banal. Uh, indeed, despite the inevitable and irreducible historical specificities of particular states' legal bulwarks concerning the regulation of immigration, the practice of deportation has emerged as a definite and increasingly pervasive convention of routine statecraft. Deporta deportation seems to have become a virtually global regime. Uh, it seems indisputable that this transformation of deportation across the intervening decades with which Arendt was concerned owes a great deal to the whole degradation of the global status of aliens in light of the mass deportations and forced population movements of the era that she describes. By the end of the 20th century, the dramatic expansion of deportation was probably nowhere more pronounced in terms of sheer numbers than in the United States. Uh, in the aftermath of the promulgation of a so-called war against terrorism, literally any and all matters concerning immigration and naturalization in the United States were subordinated officially, both discursively and practically, materially, to the explicit mandate of securitarianism. Um, that's to say, at least in the United States, um, the policies and institutions um, that have anything to do with immigrants um, or their prospective naturalization or access or eligibility for citizenship, everything to do with immigration um, as such was institutionally transformed and subordinated to a premier mandate of counterterrorism. Um, one of the signature techniques of this new formation of security state has been a strategy of targeted policing, whereby an ostensible pursuit of identifiable suspects uh, with standing orders of deportation has facilitated raiding operations, uh, usually in workplaces, in which large masses of otherwise nondescript and random so-called illegal aliens could be apprehended, blandly affiliated with criminality and mass-mediated spectacles, and summarily subjected to removal proceedings. That's to say, if, uh, if the authorities have a list of five people who've violated a deportation order that happen to work in a workplace of thousands um, or hundreds, um, that becomes the pretext, the, the search for um, criminal fugitive aliens, um, as they're called, that then becomes the basis for a mass roundup of hundreds of undocumented workers. Um, between 1997 and 2007, following the enactment of both anti-immigrant and anti-terrorist legislations in 1996, uh, U.S. immigration authorities deported 800, 897,099 non-citizens as so-called criminal aliens. Notably, this category refers only to those who were deported after they had already served prison sentences usually for nonviolent offenses, 72% of the time for nonviolent offenses, many of which were classified as felonies only for non-citizen perpetrators, and quite commonly after these migrants had already lived in the United States for decades. In fact, 20% of them had been in the country as uh, so-called legal residents prior to their deportations. Um, thus, even legally uh, resident non-citizens, often with families, commonly including U.S. citizens, children, and spouses, 
uh, were expelled and barred from re-entry and thereafter confronted long-term or permanent exclusion from the country following their deportations for having committed only petty crimes, such as shoplifting, uh, possessing stolen property, or possession of small amounts of property. <coughs> Um, that's to say, it was their mere status as non-citizens, regardless of migrant legality or illegality, which ensured that these individuals would be made to suffer the double punishment of incarceration for their criminal offenses and then subsequent summary deportation. The aggregate numbers of deportations from the U.S. during this recent period were, of course, much higher and have risen steadily every year. Between 2000 and 2008, the number of deportations annually nearly doubled. Uh, in 2005 alone, the immigration authorities deported or otherwise removed, which is their euphemism, um, but it includes a, a variety of categories that are, uh, that are distinguished from deportation as such. Um, they deported or otherwise removed 168,900 citizens, that's in 2005. By 2010, following significant increases for every intervening year, the number had shot up to 392,862. Here I refer to the total numbers of persons removed from the United States by immigration authorities annually, even when there was no criminal indictment or conviction whatsoever. In the absolute majority of cases, therefore, these figures indicate the routine deportation of run-of-the-mill, everyday, humdrum, so-called illegal aliens. Throughout the period prior to 2010, Throughout the period prior to 2010, 65 to 75 percent of these deportations were of the non-criminal variety. Still, the actual numbers of migrants apprehended and forcibly turned around by the U.S. Border Patrol is far greater still. In 2008, for instance, in addition to nearly 359,000 who were formally subjected to removal proceedings, there were another 811,263 who were simply arrested and then immediately returned to their countries of origin without the formalities and penalties of actual deportation or removal proceedings. That's to say, in 2008 alone, taken together, there were nearly 1.2 million people who were forced to leave the United States. That's one year. In addition, by 2009, the number of non-citizens indefinitely incarcerated in detention facilities for non-criminal immigration uh, violations, non-criminal, had more than doubled from the number 10 years earlier, um, reaching 369,483 um, in indefinite detention. Um, over the five-year period, 2005 to 9, the total detainee population grew by 64%. And this rapid rise in the number of individuals in detention was comprised almost entirely of non-citizens who had no criminal record whatsoever. While the number of so-called criminal detainees barely changed between 2005 and 2009, the number of detainees without any criminal conviction, uh, convictions nonetheless doubled. Um, thus, the Immigration Enforcement Authorities had seemingly focused an inordinate amount of energy on merely filling detention beds. Um, thus, these unprecedented proclivities toward migrant detention served to apparently justify the dramatically increased investment of state funds in the political economy of a largely privatized imprisonment industry. Yet for these untold millions of migrants detained and deported, there remained many more millions of undocumented and deportable migrants whose numbers never ceased to flourish. Um, therefore, every accounting of the proliferation of deportation or detention must be accompanied by a critical scrutiny of the ever-widening purview of migrant deportability. Uh, for it is the susceptibility of migrants, both so-called 
uh, illegal as well as so-called authorized migrants uh, alike, the susceptibility of these migrants to deportation that is finally of rather um, more profound consequence than actual deportations alone. Indeed, the actual deportation simply verified the veracity of the prospect of deportation as a defining and definite horizon for migrants whose laborious condition is thus rendered ever more exactingly and excruciatingly to be one of prolonged precarity and vulnerability to the recriminations of the law. Um, in this respect, the material practices of immigration enforcement serve to generate a complex but always repetitive and redundant weave of discourse and image a spectacle of illegality. Now here again, Arendt is strikingly relevant. Um, the perplexities of human rights in her account derive in no small measure from a peculiar consequence of the fact that whether we like it or not, and this is Arendt speaking, whether we like it or not, we really have started to live in one world, or in other words, the consolidation of what she deemed to be the new global political situation, a completely organized humanity in which there is no longer any so-called uncivilized spot on the earth. Um, paradoxically, as this newly comprehensive degree of global integration became self-evident, largely as a consequence of European colonization, there arose the conditions of possibility for millions of people to not only have been shorn of particular rights, but even of the right to belong to some kind of organized community such that the loss of home and political status became identical with expulsion from humanity altogether. The consequence, as she put it, was, not, uh, was a problem not of space, but of political organization. They were simply far too numerous to be handled by an unofficial practice destined for exceptional cases. Out of such mass dislocations from the jurisdiction of particular national states, there thus arose the abject figure of the stateless, rightless, subject of human rights and nothing more, the abstract nakedness of being human and nothing but human. Um, now this vexed notion of inalienable human rights, which had been predicated only on an abstract human being who seemed to exist nowhere previously, but which had always been practically inextricable from notions of popular sovereignty, nationhood, and democratic citizenship, came now to confront ever greater numbers of flesh and blood human beings. Um, these repudiated minorities and stateless refugees in Arendt's account no longer had any recourse to their putative rights as needle members of their national polities and could resort to nothing but the eminently mundane and hollow abstraction of their humanity. Um, for present purposes, it's especially instructive to see how the emergence of this awful specimen of an animal species called man, as she put it, this human being in general without a citizenship and thus without even a guaranteed right to have rights and deprived of all legality as such, how this figure coincides for Arendt not merely with the loss of a home, but the unprecedented impossibility of finding a new one, uh, a situation in which there's now no place on earth where migrants could go, as she wrote, um, without the severest of restrictions. Much as human rights turned out to be unenforceable whenever people appeared who were no longer citizens of any sovereign state, Arendt contends tellingly, the bearers of such equivocal and tre treacherous rights found themselves out of legality altogether in a worse predicament than common criminals and even designated enemy aliens. Um, utterly unprotected and at large in a global community of state powers that had come to resemble a barbed wire labyrinth, as she put it, Arendt's stateless refugee has by now acquired the dubious distinction of a still more perverse ubiquity. 
the so-called illegal and presumptively deportable migrant whose abstract humanity is synonymous with her abstract labor, the, perfect, the perfectly disposable commodity that is her labor power. Although there is, of course, a substantial difference between the sort of literally stateless subjects who can be truly deported nowhere and the routinely uh, illegal migrants who are deported in always greater numbers, our end's depiction of a paradoxical juridical condition of effective banishment from reality itself, the utter degradation of legal personhood as such for countless migrants, remains poignant and pertinent, uh, beleaguered by the spectacles of immigration enforcement and border policing that generate the fetish of her putative undesirability, this illegal migrant becomes exceedingly desirable for capital, but only insofar as she remains excruciatingly disposable. In the end, for the great majority of so-called unauthorized migrants, whether or not they can be or are in fact deported is less relevant than the prolongation and superintendence of their more general and presumed sociopolitical predicament of deportability. Now here it's crucial to return to the central figuration of mobility in the hegemonic discourse and practice of anti-terrorism. The cataclysmic ascendancy of security state measures worldwide following September 11, 2001 was of course coercively promoted by the United States through its promulgation of a so-called global war on terror. What's especially noteworthy for our purposes is that the White House's National Strategy for Combating Terrorism February 2003 explicitly affirmed that it was formulated in response to, and here I'm quoting, a new global environment chiefly distinguished by unprecedented mobility and migration. This document unabashedly sought to promote the ideal of, quotes, a seamless web of defense across the spectrum of engagement to protect our citizens and interests both at home and abroad uh, to be achieved by providing our operating forces, foreign and domestic, with a single integrated operating matrix. Uh, thus, in the same breath as it enunciated its characteristically parochial nationalism, the U.S. Homeland Security State avowed its unmistakably globalist ambitions. Um, this is characteristic of the double-voiced nature of sovereignty for the United States, as always simultaneously a mere nation-state, just one among all the rest, and nonetheless the ultimate arbiter of military force for the imperial order of capital accumulation on a global scale. In this manner, it signaled what can only be deemed an incipient global security state with unprecedented human mobility as its central target. Unprecedented human mobility as its central target. From this standpoint, human mobility and the freedom of movement might arguably seem to be beleaguered as never before, yet what came first was precisely unprecedented mobility and migration. The purportedly anti-terrorist strategy was explicitly fashioned as a response. Furthermore, it's notable all the same that the so-called war on terror, as formulated by the United States, openly, indeed extravagantly, endorsed the vision of a kind of world without borders one in which the very distinction between foreign and domestic would be defaced in favor of a seamless web, a single integrated operating matrix, a quasi-borderless state formation, global in scope and planetary in reach. From the standpoint of state power, therefore, it becomes conceivable to exalt mobility, even as it comes to be subjected, as never before, to an intricate overlay of controls and surveillance. Mobility and securitization then may be understood to operate here in the web of tensions and torsions. Um, it ought to be clear that we are in the presence of migration as first and foremost a transnational formation of labor. 
Uh, its securitization then can only be apprehensible as a matter of labor subordination. Migrant labor is plainly the irrepressible ghost in the machine of the anti-terrorist security state. If this is so, moreover, it must be recognized nonetheless to be so on a global scale. Like the spectacles of border enforcement that have long served not to eliminate or exclude so much as to produce migrant labor as much as possible as a docile and disciplined object, the spectacle of terror and its concomitant spectacle of security work to exert a productive force upon the subordination of the restless global formation of laboring humanity and all of its creative capacities and productive powers. Um, human mobility and specifically transnational migration has been a central protagonist in the creation of this new global environment, but what, is what has compelled the forces of anti-terrorist securitization to figure migrant mobility as menace? Here it's instructive to consider hypotheses regarding migration as a manifestation of labor subjectivity and specifically as a form of escape or desertion. From this critical standpoint, furthermore, scholars have promoted the concept of the autonomy of migration as a kind of social movement. Seen as a social movement, migration entails an unpredictable autonomy and mobility of labor that exceeds and subverts the capacities and competencies of territorially defined states and their border policing apparatuses to ever regulate and regiment humanity's vital energies and productive powers into fully manageable and thoroughly disciplined populations of docile citizens and subjugated foreigners. These uncontrolled and uncontrollable excesses of transnational labor mobility provoke anxieties and sometimes instigate outright crises of state sovereignty. In addition, they expose the profound limitations of citizenship itself. As supposedly rightless denizens defy the jurisdiction, authority, and presumed sanctity of state power to grant rights, disperse entitlements, provide protection, command allegiance, and monopolize many of the quintessential modern coordinates of identity itself. Um, as James Scott suggestively notes, albeit with reference to a different socio-historical context altogether, here I'm quoting, state rulers will find it well nigh impossible to install an effective sovereignty over people who are constantly in motion, who have no permanent pattern of organization, no permanent address, whose leadership is ephemeral, whose subsistence practices are pliable and furtive, who have few permanent allegiances, and who are liable over time to shift their linguistic practices and their ethnic identity. Thus, what the well-ordered and regulated subjection of mobility as a distinct variety of freedom, indeed the object of management by capital and the state, repeatedly and inevitably comes into confrontation with a more elemental and elementary freedom of movement that is the existential predicate for the autonomy and subjectivity of labor. Um, I just want to say briefly that at times this um, this notion of migration as an objective social movement um, becomes articulate and rebellious, that migrant subjectivities express themselves as outright insubordination. And this is what was so in the United States in 2006, um, when literally millions of migrants uh, demonstrated in protest against um, what was an overtly and explicitly anti-terrorist immigration legislation, which would have been the most punitive in US history and was, was literally derailed by this mass movement. Um, the, the spirit of defiance and the sensibility of uh, aversion for state power were poignantly captured in a slogan uh, in Spanish that has been persistent and, per, and pervasive. Aquí estamos y no nos vamos. Here we are and we're not leaving. The same slogan was usually accompanied by a rejoinder. 
y si nos sacan, nos regresamos. And if they kick us out, we come right back. And in the theme of presence, the profound and inextricable presence of migrants, and especially the, the undocumented within the U.S. social formation, which was exuberantly affirmed in this recurrent chant, signaled a crucial flashpoint for both sides in the struggle over immigration in the United States. For the migrants engaged in the struggle, their unauthorized presence figured as the definitive social and political objective fact. And its audacious affirmation, its reinscription as sheer insubordinate subjectivity almost seemed to signify an end in itself. Um, notably, uh, beginning in April 2008 and escalating in October 2009, a wave of strikes by several thousand undocumented migrant workers demanding legal residence in France articulated the themes of migrant presence and labor in remarkably similar terms. Their principal slogan was, on we work here, we live here, we're staying here. Um, so, I'll try to cut things short. Yeah, but, uh, um, but part of what I want to say about these slogans is they can be understood in a national context, but in fact they articulate a kind of ubiquity that owes to a transnational mobility, one that exceeds the parameters of national states, and we can talk more about that. Um, and and these this veritable social movement of so-called illegal migrants did not ask for permission to migrate. The occasionally vociferous self-expression of migrants as political movements, especially as articulated in the 2006 mobilizations of the US, did not wait for any authorities to give them their freedoms and disdained to beg or plead for any rights to migrate again, if necessary, should the deportation regime sweep them up. Um, from, for these migrants, their mobility is not a right ordained and anointed by the sovereign power of constituted authorities. Rather, it is realized as a practice of freedom. Uh, its very exercise manifests its own vital and autonomous power, its subjective potentiality, and its open-ended creative capacity. So. Thank you very much.